Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866 609 3711. All right, this is episode 11 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today is Tuesday, October 26, 2021. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused to go along with their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer would not have allowed me to say that on a radio. That was instantly fireable offense. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. And yes, yes, there is more and more evidence out there that the activities at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th were a total setup by the feds. A total set up by the feds. Uh, Now, Darren J. Beatty has a website, revolver.news. He has an amazing article out. I don't know if you watched Tucker Carlson on Fox last night. He interviewed Darren Beatty, but there's a lot more to the proof that this was a setup by the feds, and I want to take a deep dive into this article because it it was remarkable. It is amazing. And I will, of course, link to it on my Facebook page in a little bit. Revolver.news. Article entitled, Meet Ray Epps, the Fed-protected provocateur who appears to have led the very first January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And he says, in a House hearing last Thursday, U.S. Representative Thomas Massey, Republican of Kentucky, questioned Attorney General Merrick Garland about a mysterious man, Ray Epps, instructing protesters to enter the U.S. Capitol building on January 5th and who later shepherded crowds toward the Capitol on January 6th. All right, so first we have uh, Massey introducing this. There's a concern that there were agents of the government or assets of the government present on January 5th and January 6th uh, during the protests. And uh, I've got some pictures that I want to show you. My staff could bring those to you. And then he starts playing video of this Ray Epps guy for uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland. And the video that he's playing, the audio of it, uh, it wouldn't do any good for us to play on, uh, on the podcast, on the live stream today. But after he plays the video, 
Then this happens. All right, you have you have those images there, and they're captioned. Uh, they were from January 5th and January 6th. As far as we can determine, the individual who was saying he'll probably go to jail, he'll probably be arrested, but he wants every. But they need to go into the Capitol the next day. Is then the next day directing people to the Capitol. And as far as we can find, this individual has not been charged with anything. You said this is one of the most sweeping investigations in the history. Uh, have you seen that video or those frames from that video? So as I um, uh, said at the outset, uh, one of the norms of the Justice Department is to not comment on impending investigations and particularly not to comment about uh, particular scenes or particular individuals. This okay, without, I, I was hoping today to give you an opportunity to put to rest the concerns that people have that there were federal agents or assets of the federal government present on January 5th and January 6th. Can you tell us without talking about particular incidents or particular videos, how many agents or assets of the federal government were present on January 6th, whether they agitated to go into the Capitol and if any of them did? Yeah, so I'm not going to violate this norm of, uh, of, of uh, the rule of law. I'm not going to comment on an investigation that's ongoing. All right, so there you go. And very good reason the Attorney General didn't want to comment on that. Very good reason. Darren J. Beatty's Revolver.News article continues the story of the mystery man Ray Epps, featured in U.S. Representative Thomas Massey's video, is in fact far more shocking than even the good congressman implies in the hearing last Thursday. It is a story so strange and so scandalous at every turn that it threatens to shatter the entire official narrative of the so-called capital breach and expose yet another dimension of proactive federal involvement in the so-called insurrection of January 6th. Now, if Revolver News' previous reporting points to a proactive role of the federal government in relation to the conspiracy cases against Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, the Ray Epps story that follows suggests a similar yet more egregious, explicit, direct, and immediate degree of federal involvement in the breach of the Capitol itself. Merrick Garland couldn't even look Congressman Massey in the eye. And there is good reason why Attorney General Garland ran from Congressman Massey's question faster than he could find words and why he couldn't keep eye contact as he was dodging Massey's gaze. After months of research, Revolver's investigative reporting team can now reveal Ray Epps appears to be among the primary orchestrators of the very first breach of the Capitol's police barricades at 12.50 p.m. on January 6th. Appears, Epps appears to have led the, the breach team that committed the very first illegal acts on that fateful day. What's more, Epps and his breach team did all their dirty work with 10 minutes still remaining in President Trump's National Mall speech way over on the National Mall with the vast majority of Trump supporters still anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes away from the Capitol. Also, Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News 
determined and will prove that the FBI stealthily removed Ray Epps from its capital violence most wanted list on July 1st, just one day after Revolver exposed the inexplicable and puzzlesome FBI protection of known Epps associate and Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes. July 1st was also just one day after separate New York Times report amplified a glaring, falsifiable lie about Ray Epps' role in the events of January 6th. Lastly, Ray Epps appears to have worked alongside several individuals, many of them suspiciously unindicted, to carry out a breach of the police barricades that induced a subsequent flood of unsuspecting MAGA protesters to unwittingly trespass on Capitol-restricted grounds and place themselves in legal jeopardy. Man, what a setup. Now, identifying the individual in Thomas Massey's video as Ray Epps was a surprisingly quick and easy task for the Internet. It took less than a week after January 6th for online researchers to track Ray Epps down and confirm his identity. Researchers uncovered his personal Facebook profile where Epps shared his life story on Mark Zuckerberg's social media app under his real name. On Facebook, Ray Epps posted photos of himself boating, on horseback, and bear hunting with a crossbow. In many respects, Epps seemed to be quite an impressive figure. He served in the U.S. Marines, ultimately worked his way up to full Marine sergeant, according to his previous public title, Sergeant U.S. Marine Corps, and his private Facebook nostalgic musings. Researchers went on to locate Ray Epps' ranch in Arizona, his events business, his private holding company, almost every public, publicly discoverable record imaginable. Epps, who grew up in Arizona and still lives there today, was contacted directly by local newspaper Arizona Central on July 11th, less than a week after January, pardon me, on January 11th, less than a week after January 6th, and just three days after Epps was added to the FBI Most Wanted list, a detail upon which we will elaborate later on in this report. Now, Arizona Central, which published its contemporaneous article on Ray Epps under the original headline, in video, Trump supporter says we need to go into the Capitol, first confirms his attendance at the Capitol protest. And this is what the newspaper said. A Queen Creek man who acknowledges he was in Washington, D.C., for last week's rally by President Donald Trump also appears to be shown in videos taken the night before talking about plans to go inside the U.S. Capitol. In one video that has been widely viewed on Twitter, he can be heard saying, I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. I'll say it. We need to go into the Capitol. Interesting, he never was arrested. Ray Epps told the Arizona Republic in a brief telephone interview that he had traveled to the Capitol for the event and that he had been advised by an attorney not to speak about it. He said, I think the truth needs to get out. A video online appears to show him saying, we're here to defend the Constitution and we need to go into the Capitol. Now, that's from the Arizona Central newspaper. Epps didn't stop at simply confirming his presence at the Capitol. Epps effectively corroborated on record that he was the exact same man telling Trump supporters they needed to go inside the Capitol. Again, Arizona Central says, asked about it, he first told the Republic he would need to see the video. When he read a transcript of the comments, he said, the only thing that that meant 
as we would go to in the doors like everyone else. It was totally, totally wrong the way they went in. So, then Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News has a video which compiles shortened versions of five separate exchanges involving Epps at various hours during the night of January 5th and afternoon of January 6th. So as people watch the video and process the information to follow, it's important to keep in mind, very important fact, Ray Epps remains a free man. He has never been arrested or charged nearly 10 months after January 6th. The FBI and Justice Department still refuse to comment on whether Epps has ever been even served a search warrant. But we do know that at least rank-and-file FBI investigators were intensely interested in Ray Epps in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. By January 8th, the FBI Capital Violence Most Wanted list featured a big, fat, friendly face shot of Ray Epps. The FBI's Washington field office and a tweet the same day. Call for the public's help in identifying Ray Epps. Epps dressed in full camo with a bright red Trump hat on is the FBI's suspect 16 in what they put out on January 8th, the FBI capital violence most wanted list on Facebook and Twitter. He's right there. And for your edification, Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News matched FBI suspect number photo number 16 to a timestamp of 48 seconds into the full barricade breach source video. This is the guy. There's no question about it. Now, there are currently 486 suspects in the FBI's capital violence most wanted list. The fact that Ray Epps was one of the first 20 suspects the FBI ever public, publicly featured on its be on the lookout boards and most wanted lists reveals just how high a priority the FBI's rank-and-file investigators considered Ray Epps to be. So to recap, on January 8th, just two days after what happened to the Capitol, the FBI begged the public's help, pardon me, the public's help to identify the mysterious person number 16. Then a funny thing happened. The public actually delivered. Initially, swarms of left-wing researcher accounts, Antifa groups, and partisan nonprofits leapt into crowdsourced internet detective mode. They assigned Ray Epps' identity, various hashtags, and tracked his movements throughout January 5th and 6th. The primary three hashtags assigned by these left-wing researchers to Ray Epps were hashtag crowd control, because of the way Ray Epps was always controlling every crowd he was a part of on both January 5th and January 6th. Hashtag Fed Boomer, because of the shocking video analyzed below of Ray Epps being shouted down as a Fed by Trump supporters for proposing to enter the Capitol. And hashtag Big MAGA Camo, which came to be Epps' final neutral descriptor name. It is under the hashtag Big MAGA Camo moniker that virtually all left-wing databases 
Shared Google spreadsheets and multimedia archives retain most of their Ray Epps information. Within days of the riot of the Capitol, archives quickly swelled with videos and images of Ray Epps. Now, he played two roles in virtually every encounter during his Commando Capitol tour on January 6th. First, Ray Epps instructed his commandos and the crowds at his attention to rush into the Capitol and let nothing stop them. Second, Ray Epps assiduously protected cops and law enforcement so no local or federal officers would be harmed during the precision breaches. If you want to see what this walking philosophical paradox looks like in action, there's a clip of Ray Epps patrolling the very front police lines on the Capitol's Western Plaza at approximately 3.15 p.m. at the height of January 6th mania, nearly two and a half hours after Epps and his breach team appeared to coordinate the toppling of the Capitol's east side police barricades. This is also nearly a full hour after the U.S. Capitol building itself had already been breached, with Epps' stated mission of breaching the Capitol accomplished and hundreds of Trump supporters already inside, his mission magically switched to all of a sudden calming the crowd down, assuring them we've already made our point and ensuring that no more of his apparently fellow officers got hurt that afternoon. Let's see if we can listen to a little bit of this. I would have came locked and loaded if I knew this was happening. Take a step back. Take a step back. We're holding ground. We're not trying to get people hurt. They don't want to get hurt. You don't want to get hurt. So the same guy who had been begging people, we got to get in there. A couple hours later, after there are plenty of people still outside, he's like, hey, calm down, everybody, calm down. We made our point. So on January 8th, 2021, the FBI begged the public for information regarding the identity of suspect 16 Ray Epps and even offered a cash reward. Well, the public obliged and in less than three days, Ray Epps was identified as suspect 16. Researchers corroborated his identity with troves of unassailable direct evidence, including an effective confession from Ray Epps himself to his own local hometown newspaper. Then, for nearly six months, amidst the biggest manhunt in American history, the FBI did absolutely nothing with this information. As the FBI did nothing on Ray Epps, it was simultaneously investigating, arresting, raiding, and imprisoning hundreds of completely benign MAGA moms and social media trolls mostly for minor misdemeanor trespassing charges. Then, on July 1st, between the hours of 3.37 a.m. and 5.55 p.m., the FBI finally took action on Ray Epps, but not to prosecute him or to announce a sweeping investigation or FBI SWAT raid on Epps' house for all of his phones and electronics. No, 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 none of that. Instead, Someone at the FBI quietly and stealthily 
purged every trace of Ray Epps from the Capitol Riot's Most Wanted database. Using the Wayback Machine from archive.org, we see that from January 8th, 2021, all the way until 3.37 a.m. July 1st, every archived version of the FBI.gov website shows Ray Epps as Suspect 16. Then there's a photo, just a snapshot sample from January, pardon me, from February 16th, 2021 on Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News article here of Ray Epps being suspect number 16. But users can view the web archive themselves to witness the Ray Epps purge occurring sometime between 3.37 a.m. and 5.55 p.m. on January, on July 1st, on July 1st. That would be during the FBI workday. Now, in case you're listening to this and wondering, Wayback Machine, what is that? The Wayback Machine is where you can go to see what a website used to look like before they deleted something or to see what a website used to look like before they changed it. And sometimes it goes all the way back into the 90s. The Wayback Machine is at archive.org, archive.org. The thing that surprises me is the FBI didn't think to wipe this out of the Wayback Machine. So God bless Darren J. Beatty and the team at Revolver News for going to the Wayback Machine and proving that from January 8th to July 1st, Ray Epps was one of the FBI most wanted guys here, and all of a sudden they took him out. And by took him out, I mean just deleted him from the website. On July 1st, Ray Epps, suspect 16, was disappeared as if he never existed. Now let's be clear. Ray Epps was not purged because he was arrested. If he was arrested, the FBI wanted list would have the caption arrested affixed to his picture. So you can plainly see that's what's done for all other arrested suspects in the database itself if you take a look at it. Further, the searchable justice.gov capital breach cases database confirms there are no case dockets or filings for anyone named Epps at all. To anyone actually checking the January 6th FBI most wanted list today, suspect 16 is just a ghost. Only obsessive, fastidious, Wayback Machine users spending hours pouring through archived screenshots could ever forensically confirm that Ray Epps had ever been a wanted man by the FBI in the first place. So the question then arises, what prompted the FBI's six-month slumber on Ray Epps and then their sudden purge on July 1st? Well, they panicked. Two major media reports came out on June 30th, each one of which touched the Ray Epps third rail from different angles, and the FBI likely realized it was no longer safe to maintain a digital record acknowledging they ever knew who this guy was in the first place. Then the FBI hoped no one would notice the purged files or would either politely look away or actively assist with their cover-up. 
So let's spell out the chronology a bit more before discussing the two pieces that likely prompted the FBI freakout. First, while left-wing and Antifa accounts have been all over Ray Epps since week one, way back in January, Epps did not come to right-wing and pro-Trump researchers' attention until June 17th when a viral Twitter thread highlighted a series of shocking, verifiable, live-stream video timestamps where Ray Epps instructed Trump supporters to go into the Capitol and then was shouted down on suspicions he was a federal agent. And that was remarkable in and of itself. Let me, let me, let me, let me just play you a little bit of that. Shouted down on suspicions that he was a federal agent. Check this out. You're wanting to beat somebody up. It's not I, worth it, wait, man. Wait, wait, when did I ever say that? I never said I want to beat anyone up. Okay. I'm not going to argue. I want to stand up for a right. I agree with you. I agree with you. But tonight, you know. I know. In fact, tomorrow, I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. Well, let's not say it. We need, we need to go. It. I'll say it. All right. We need to go in to the Capitol. Let's go! Saying his optics Space Fed posting? Yeah. Right. <laughs> we need to go into the Capitol. I didn't see that coming. Okay. And a little bit later, they start yelling, Fed, Fed, Fed. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right. Now, that having been said, that having been said, just three days prior to the publication of the Epps Twitter thread, Revolver News published a June 14th report on FBI operatives embedded within the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers on January 6th, which created a national narrative igniting a firestorm around the issue. With Revolver's piece catching national attention, the Epps Twitter clips posted June 17th intensified right-wing interest on how it could be possible that Ray Epps remained unindicted. After all, the Justice Department, in its hundreds of arrests, claims to still be stumped by the lack of evidence that anyone had actually pre-planned the storming of the Capitol. <clears throat> but Epps did, obviously. On June 30th, the New York Times published a piece entitled Inside the Capitol Riot, an Exclusive Video Investigation. This is the first of the two aforementioned June 30th publications that caused major problems to the FBI's narrative. The New York Times analysis purported to be the official record of what happened at the Capitol that day, but there were a few problems with this so-called official record produced by the New York Times. For one, it told an outright lie about Ray Epps. Here's what the Times said. One of the biggest questions hanging over the aftermath of January 6th was whether the riot was planned and carried out by organized groups. By identifying and tracking key players throughout the day, we found that most, even some at the forefront of the action, were ardent but disorganized Trump supporters swept up in the moment and acting individually. The first person to enter the Capitol building, for example, was a 43-year-old husband and father from Kentucky named Michael Sparks. He has no known affiliation with any organized groups. Ray Epps, an Arizona man seen in widely circulated videos telling Trump supporters on multiple occasions to go into the Capitol, also seemed to have acted on his own. <clears throat> now then, the New York Times appears to be running cover for the FBI 
by referencing Ray Epps' appearance in widely circulated videos and concluding that he seemed to have acted on his own. This media malpractice, New York Times cover-up lie, could not be further from the truth. So next, there is a video of Ray Epps giving explicit instructions mere minutes before the very first breach of a police barricade on January 6th. He gives these instructions to a still unindicted, still FBI-wanted ex-Marine commando nicknamed Maroon PB, who is antagonizing police officers with a blazing bullhorn. So that went something like this. So can we come up? Yeah, whose side are you on? Constitution or the government? Because they're not the same thing. I'm not picking on them, but you know what? Noted. All right, noted. Okay, but one more thing. Yeah, so can we go up there? No? When we go in. Are we going to get arrested if we go up there? You don't need to get shot. Can arrest us all? There's a few of us, like a dozen or so. Okay, but one more thing. Yeah, so can we go up there? No? When we go in. Are we going to get arrested if we go up there? You don't need to get shot. Can arrest us all? Okay, so after receiving instructions from Ray Epps, this Maroon PB guy replies, noted, which last we checked means stipulated, understood, or agreed. This is an explicit verbal agreement between two or more people, the opposite of the New York Times' claim that Epps acted on his own. In case it wasn't clear enough already, Ray Epps also says one more thing, stipulating he gave the man a set of instructions before adding the others. And those next instructions were, when we go in, leave this here, likely in reference to Maroon PB's canister of beer, bear spray. Amazingly, on June 30th, the New York Times insurrection obsessives tried to decipher a secret dog whistle between President Trump, Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, and the tens of thousands of mega, mega protesters in D.C. that day were now poking their own eyes out to avoid acknowledging actual coordination caught on tape between unindicted persons apparently orchestrating the opening act of the Capitol attack. In any case, the New York Times story must have created a real public relations headache for the FBI. How could the New York Times tell tens of millions of people that Ray Epps was a key instigator in the makeup of the mob, if the FBI had already known about Epps for over six months and even had his mugshot on the most wanted list. Perhaps the New York Times would have done the FBI a much bigger favor if they had simply not referred to Ray Epps at all, but they did. Could it be that the FBI decided they would just purge Ray Epps from the list, never tell anyone, and pretend they had never seen all the videotapes, the images, the message boards, the newspaper confession, and so on. As long as no one blew up Ray Epps' name any further, maybe, just maybe, the whole thing might blow over. Also, on June 30th, Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News published a bombshell report exploring the extraordinary degree of federal protection afforded to founder and leader of the Oath Keepers Militia, a man named Stuart Rhodes. This is the second of the aforementioned two pieces that likely triggered the FBI's freakout. 
A recent Revolver update on the inexplicable FBI protection of Stuart Rhodes recaps the strange situation. Now, prosecutors argue it was Stuart Rhodes who established the Oath Keepers conspiracy. They argue it was Stuart Rhodes who recruited people into the conspiracy. They argue it was Stuart Rhodes who organized and gave key instructions to the conspirators. They argue it was Stuart Rhodes who suggested the use of illegal weapons such as collapsible batons. Prosecutors argue that Stuart Rhodes, who activated the conspiracy in real time on January 6th via text messages and phone calls to his lieutenants from about 1.38 to 2.40 p.m. January 6th. They argue it was Stuart Rhodes who waited on the Capitol steps for the completion of the conspiracy from approximately 3.30 to 4 p.m., and they argue it was Stuart Rhodes who later congratulated everyone on conspiracy well done at 7.14 that evening. Furthermore, the Oath Keepers indictment cites 18 phone calls as evidence of a coordination of common conspiracy. They argue... Also, Stuart Rhodes is the person either calling or being called in 10 of those 18 phone calls. Put another way, Rhodes makes or receives 55% of all phone calls in a massive conspiracy, massive conspiracy case spanning 16 defendants. And when you combine phone calls involving Stuart Rhodes and those involving the mysteriously unindicted person number 10, who Rhodes appointed as ground commander for the day, that number rises to 100% of all phone calls. So, what exactly... Does this curious case of Stuart Rhodes have to do with Ray Epps? Well, students of FBI history should quickly absorb the lesson that infiltrating feds are like roaches. Whenever you spot one, it's guaranteed. There are dozens others nearby. Feds simply never, ever operate alone. This is how you ended up with at least 12 FBI informants and the supposedly tiny right-wing militia, Mich- Michigan militia plot from October 2020 to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And that's just 12 FBI informants. So that didn't even count the agents. This is also how you end up with 15 informants in the so-called right-wing 2016 plot at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. This is also how you wind up with dozens of FBI folks in the 2014 Bundy Ranch affair. Remember Clive and Bundy? Including six FBI undercover agents posing as fake documentarians, shooting a fake documentary, and the list goes on and on. You'll be shocked then to learn that the Oath Keepers sport an eye-poppingly long history of FBI infiltration. And lo and behold, Ray Epps, and Oath Keepers Kingpin Stuart Rhodes are actually old pals in the Oath Keepers organization. In fact, Stuart Rhodes was Ray Epps' old boss. Back in 2011-2012, Ray Epps was the Arizona State Chapter Leader of the Oath Keepers, the biggest Oath Keepers chapter in the country, while Stuart Rhodes was and remains the national leader. And they have archived proof of Epps as Arizona Oathkeeper president. A lot of links to that. Radley Balco over Reason Magazine even interviewed Ray Epps while Epps was running the Arizona Oathkeepers a decade ago. He said, this week I also spoke with Ray Epps. 
retired Marine Sergeant from Mesa, Arizona, and president of the Arizona Chapter of Oath Keepers, the controversial organization of police and military personnel who have vowed not to enforce laws they believe are unconstitutional. After hearing about Garena's death, Ray Epps drove to Tucson to investigate. So, oddly, Stuart Rhodes' website, oathkeepers.org, deleted several historical blog posts featuring events run by Ray Epps, where Epps was listed as both president and press contact of the Arizona chapter of Oath Keepers. Now, the Wayback Machine's automatic archiving process suggests Stuart Rhodes' oathkeepers.org posts concerning Ray Epps were effectively dormant from 2011 until 2021. Then, at approximately 3 p.m. January 27th this year, there's an update showing the page had been 404 In other words, deleted. He got the error message. Now, January 27th is less than three weeks after Ray Epps was added to the FBI's January 6th most wanted list. January 27th is also the same day the very first criminal indictment against the Oath Keepers was unsealed and made available to the public. So, they've got an embedded video here of Ray Epps and Stuart Rhodes marching side-by-side in a march they organized while Epps was in charge of the Arizona chapter of Oath Keepers. They also have Ray Epps and Stuart Rhodes together in a memorial service. Uh, they got a screenshot of Ray Epps and Stuart Rhodes at a hometown buffet, the duo hosted in Arizona. These guys are buddies. So while a precise Timeline of Ray Epps' Oath Keeper relationship is not yet known. Several data points are revealing. Public property records show Ray Epps lived in Arizona back in 2009, returned to Arizona in 2011 for a brief period in 2010. He appeared to maintain residence in Vegas, given that's exactly where Stuart Rhodes was living at the time, and that Epps returned to Arizona to become Stuart Rhodes' top lieutenant as president of the Oath Keeper's largest state chapter, Arizona. It seems quite plausible. Epps and Rhodes were early associates at the very outset of the Oath Keepers as an organization. Now, the story of Ray Epps' journey through the January 6th universe, this is where it gets really good. There are a series of clips which run from approximately 10.30 p.m. to midnight on the evening of January 5th. The scenes depicted in these clips all occurred in the newly named Black Lives Matter Plaza at 16th Street Northwest in D.C., just blocks from the White House. That's where Trump supporters from around the company, pardon me, from around the country who had flown in for the protest gathered together. They had just been separated from Antifa or Black Lives Matter counter-protesters, some of whom had been violently attacking Trump supporters that strayed from the main crowd. Some Trump supporters, including isolated women, were beaten senseless and bloody on the street. And the crowd was particularly agitated as a result. You'll hear in a video clip, it begins with a Trump supporter saying they're not Americans, they're terrorists, referring to the Antifa Black Lives Matter group that attacked them. So 
The two gangs have been separated by a police line, but on the Trump side, Ray Epps held court, and he instructed the Trump crowd to redirect their energies away from counter-protesters and join his plot to go inside the Capitol the next day instead. But Americans are terrorists. Yes, you are. Guys, guys, yes, you are. Guys, I'm not saying they already I know what up there. I'm going to put it out there. I'm probably going to go to jail for it. Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. What? No! Peacefully. Fed, 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 peacefully. Did you get that? They're shouting, fed, fed, fed. You're a fed. The Trump crowd immediately identified Epps' proposal to storm the Capitol as something only a fed would propose. Got it? January 6th, after all, was scheduled as a Trump rally. In the 323 rallies before Trump took office and the 168 Trump rallies after he took office, there had Never been a single instance of rioting or pre-planned illegal activity. So law-breaking was zero for 491 at Trump rallies before January 6th of this year. Perhaps this extraordinary track record of physical restraint explains why Epps' arrest bait proposal stood out like a sore thumb and why he was quickly shouted down with people saying, Fed, Fed, Fed. But that above encounter was not the first time on January 5th that Ray Epps held court in a crowded gathering demanding everyone in earshot rush the Capitol the next day. There's another clip that they have embedded on this news story from slightly earlier in the evening where Epps gave the exact same spiel, almost as if his lines were practiced and rehearsed. Note how Epps deploys the same preface of I probably shouldn't say this because I'll probably get arrested before making his same capital invasion speech and delivers the same theatrical pause after in when he tells them we need to go in to the capital. Here it is again. You're wanting to beat somebody up. It's not and worth it, wait, man. Wait, wait, when did I ever say that? I never said I want to beat anyone up. Okay. I'm not going to argue. I want to stand up for our rights. I agree with you. I agree with you. But tonight, you know. I know. In fact, tomorrow, I don't even like to say it because I'll be arrested. Well, let's not say it. We need, we need to say go. It. I'll say it. All right. We need to go in to the Capitol. Let's go! Saying his optics Base fed right. posting? Yeah. <laughs> we need to go into the Capitol. I didn't see that coming. Okay. So in every instance, Ray Epps barges into other people's conversations wholly unwanted to make his appeal. Trump supporters became so hostile towards Ray Epps that they became openly disrespectful. This disrespect in turn elicited a sympathetic rejoinder from other Trump supporters who appealed that Ray Epps should be thanked for his service. After all, he had been telling everyone within earshot that night that he had been a sergeant in the U.S. Marines, which naturally appeals to the charity and gratitude most Trump supporters extend toward any man or woman who served the country in uniform. Notably, reverence toward military sergeants and elite commandos induces an obedience effect in normal citizens looking for leadership, 
on who to follow and what to do in the midst of a chaotic, chaotic situation. Oath Keeper and Army Green Beret veteran Jeremy Brown, whose incredible and scandalous arrest Revolver covered in a previous report, was solicited by federal agents just weeks before January 6th, was offered a cash reward to become a confidential FBI informant to turn on the Oath Keepers. Now, they got an embedded embedded audio here, an interview with Jeremy Brown, which the audio doesn't sound good enough to play, but it's on the article, and I'll have the article on my Facebook page, in which Jeremy Brown, again, Oath Keeper and Army Green Beret veteran, provides audio. He was recording the agents, the FBI agents, and then explains the obedience effect he knew his becoming an informant would have induced on those around him. And this brings us back to Marine Sergeant Ray Epps. Some protesters in the plaza were mad at Biden. Some were mad at Black Lives Matter. Some were mad at Antifa. Some were mad at George Soros. Some were even mad about COVID restrictions. Some were mad about election fraud. Some weren't even mad. They just loved Trump and thought the event looked like fun. Yet Ray Epps was insistent that everyone... Stay focused on a common mission, storming the Capitol January 6th on multiple live streams. Ray Epps moves from group to group throughout the plaza, barging in and insisting everyone stay focused on what we're here for, which he would then explain meant going inside the U.S. Capitol building. When asked to give a reason for his crazy plot, Ray Epps would continually fall back on his catch-all rationale, quote, it's about the Constitution, unquote. In another clip, a young woman with a bullhorn addresses the Trump crowd's grievances with various left-wing adversaries, including Black Lives Matter, George Soros, and COVID tyranny. At that moment, Ray Epps rushes in to stop and refocus her toward, you guessed it, storming the Capitol the next day. This sequence immediately precedes the Fed, Fed, Fed shoutdown we played for you earlier. So while some of the action occurs off camera in a live stream, when you look at this later, you can see the context of how Ray Epps was interacting with the crowd. Also, you can note how he insisted on just one minute to give his, his pitch, but the crowd, already agitated with him, said they would only give him 30 seconds. The same cycle re- repeated itself again and again during Ray Epps' 90-minute excursion in the plaza as he moved from group to group from 10.30 to midnight on January 5th, trying to get them focused on the mission for the next day. Whenever a different speaker or a conversationalist aired a different grievance against any MAGA adversary, Ray Epps would insist, we're here for another reason. And there are a bunch of videos in Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News website about this. Taking a closer look at these clips... Some careful readers might note there was a guy standing next to Ray Epps, Ray Epps, who appears to say Epps sounded like some undercover agent, a guy named John Sullivan. Now, Sullivan is an interesting character in his own right and definitely germane to the story at large. In the aftermath of January 6th, many Republicans were quick to blame John Sullivan the most incendiary and violent elements of January 6th 
pardon me, let me get it right. In the aftermath of January 6th, many Republicans were quick to blame the most incendiary and violent elements of January 6th on Antifa or Black Lives Matter to support their hunch. Republicans especially cited the standout anecdote of John Sullivan. He was the very peculiar character who filmed the vivid scene of Ashley Babbitt's shocking death. As Ashley Babbitt lay bloody, helpless, and slowly dying, draped in a Trump 2020 flag, John Sullivan's high-resolution live stream served as the world's focal lens on the apex tragedy of the day's events. The first videos you likely saw of Ashley Babbitt's death had a watermark in the bottom right reading Jaden X. The watermark is still present in the iconic broken glass photo that was circulated widely on network news reports. Jaden X is one of several names that John Sullivan goes by. Conservative politicians and MAGA supporters were quick to make the case that John Sullivan was an Antifa activist. That left-wing radical fixation dominated, for example, the March 3, 2021 Senate investigation hearing. Indeed, John Sullivan had purported to be a Black Lives Matter Antifa activist in at least two major U.S. cities throughout 2020 before donning a MAGA hat and raiding the Capitol on January 6th. Naturally, the MAGA world was shocked a hardcore left-wing riot activist later turned up inside the U.S. Capitol building recording an HD live stream while shouting such things as, let's burn this expletive deleted down, we did this blank, and we took this blank. Security guards also accused Sullivan of defacing statues while inside the Capitol. John Sullivan even smashed a window of the Capitol, perhaps by accident, while inside. And despite being detained on January 6th and questioned for an hour by both the Metropolitan Police Department and the FBI, John Sullivan was inexplicably released that very night. But John Sullivan was not exactly a Black Lives Matter or Antifa activist in good standing. Amazingly, he had been kicked out of and permanently banned from multiple Antifa communities because Antifa cell leaders suspected John Sullivan of being an undercover FBI-handled agent provocateur sent to land them in jail. Republicans, despite being brutalized repeatedly by sociopathically corrupt FBI factions within the Counterintelligence Bureau at least dozens of times during Trump's tenure in office, and they link to this, never seem to ask themselves until Revolver's June 14th report this question. What if the provocateurs, infiltrators, and escalators of illegal activities on January 6th weren't coming from Antifa or Black Lives Matter. What if they were coming straight from the FBI? As Revolver has repeatedly stressed, unlike Antifa or Black Lives Matter, the FBI has actually done all of this before. And they link to the article from June 21st this year. They've done this before five past cases of FBI incitement. And (laughs) this is something you might want to look at over the weekend at your leisure. One of them, I'll just mention one of them. 
And that was the shooting in Garland, Texas, at the first annual Muhammad Art Exhibit and Contest, where some friends of mine almost got killed, where the FBI had talked to a couple of jihadists from driving all the way from Arizona to Garland, Texas to, to shoot these people for having the gall to have a cartoon contest about Muhammad. An FBI agent was in a car following the cars, following the car of the two guys who drove all the way from the Phoenix, Arizona area to Garland, Texas, jumped out, started shooting, and were taken down by an off-duty police officer who was doing security for the event. The FBI agent was going to let the shooting happen. He was going to let the people be killed. He did nothing to stop the jihadists from trying to shoot the people. That's just one of the five, okay? That's just one of the five. In this article, Revolver did June 21st of this year, entitled, They've Done This Before, Five Past Cases of FBI Incitement. Just so you know. Just so you know. So, back to the main article. So, to recap, months before January 6th, John Sullivan was banned from Antifa groups on suspicions of being a Fed. And they linked to a whole thread, a Twitter thread about all of that. But in it, in it, the author succinctly lists out typical behavior patterns of infiltrators or agents provocateurs to watch out for which served as a basis for outing John Sullivan. Number one, new to the community yet ignores existing safety standards, eager to take on sudden leadership roles. Number two, burned bridges or untraceable ties from prior communities lacking references. Number three, moves quickly through different organizations and leaves a wake of discourse or drama. Number four, charismatic slash zealous but acts without conviction. Number five, grandiose plans of action that are highly illegal slash risky, but they want you to do it. Number six, gravitates toward other abusers and grifters. Number seven, poor operation security or information security, lack of interest in protecting comrades' anonymity. Number eight, suspicious social media presence, new accounts, high number of followers with low engagement or circular engagement within a few similar accounts. Number nine, spending doesn't match stated source of income. Number 10, lashes out and makes accusations when confronted. Number 11, prioritizing personal financial rep or reputational gain, grifting, profiteering, lack of transparency, centering their own story or brand, eager to talk to press. Last but not least, number 12, connections with police or feds, personal, professional, or familial. Now, all 12 of these, all 12 of these red flags apply to key figures in the January 6th story who are far more significant than John Sullivan. Ten of these 12 red flags apply to Ray Epps, and virtually all of them appear to apply to Ray Epps' former Oath Keeper boss, the still unindicted, still uninvestigated, still FBI-protected Stuart Rhodes. John Sullivan also claimed to be a member of the media 
documenting the events of January 6th, CNN and NBC, remember, even paid him tens of thousands of dollars for his footage. It's worth remembering, however, the FBI itself has a rather shocking history of deploying undercover agents and assets to pose as fake documentarians to shoot fake documentaries and fake exclusive footage during high-profile right-wing protests and events. For example, the high-profile Bundy Family Ranch standoff. April 2014. Stuart Rhodes and his Oath Keepers rocketed to national celebrity for leading the scouts out perimeter of the ranch, which was the buffer zone between the Bundy family and the FBI, but unbeknownst to the Bundy ranchers. Where the Oath Keepers arrived... The FBI had sent in a fake documentary crew with real feds shooting real footage, but with a fake documentary purpose as a means of securing exclusive access, incriminating interviews, and evidence about the Bundy Ranch participants. Wow. And here's what it says. Now, here in the comforts of the Bellagio, six documentary filmmakers trained bright lights and high-definition cameras on Ryan Bundy. They wanted to ask about the standoff. Ryan fidgeted before the cameras. He has told this story before. That wasn't the reason for his nerves. Something seemed off to Ryan about this interview in the Bellagio. While the family's newfound fame had attracted fresh supporters to their cause, it also inspired suspicion. With a federal investigation looming, Who among these new faces could they really trust? Among the more recent figures in the Bundy orbit was this mysterious documentary film crew. The director, Charles Johnson, was middle-aged with a silver goatee, slick-backed hair, thick southern accent. His assistant, who identified herself as Anna, was tall and blonde. Website for the company, Longbow Productions, listed an address in Nashville, but the Bundys could find no previous, previous examples of their work. As the cameras recorded, Ryan's skepticism was plain. At times, his right eye rolled back into his head, the result of a childhood accident that paralyzed half of his face, and his gaze shifted to figures outside the shot. One of his companions explained to the film crew, there's been a lot of red flags in the community about Longbow Productions. No BS, straight talk. It's almost like you're trying to make us incriminate ourselves. With a conspicuously placed copy of the U.S. Constitution poking out of his left breast pocket, Ryan turned his gaze to Johnson. He said, we really, don't want, we really do want to work with you, if that's what's really going on, but his family needed to know, is this just a mole project to garner information that will then be given to the feds? Johnson insisted the project was a legitimate endeavor. He says, I want a truthful documentary. Ryan said, all righty, let's proceed. Ryan should have trusted his instincts. Johnson and his colleagues were not documentarians. They were undercover FBI agents posing as filmmakers. By the time they sat down with Ryan, Johnson and his team had spent eight months traveling to at least five states to film interviews with nearly two dozen people about the Bundy standoff, all part of an FBI effort to build criminal cases against the Bundys and their supporters. The story of the FBI's fake documentary crew revealed in more than 100 hours of video and audio recordings obtained by The Intercept offers an unprecedented window into how federal law enforcement agents impersonate journalists 
to gain access to criminal suspects. The raw material produced by the FBI was presented under seal in the U.S. District Court in Nevada, where Ryan Bundy, his father Cliven, and his brothers, as well as more than a dozen supporters, were charged with conspiracy, assault, weapons offenses, and other crimes related to the standoff with the government. Okay, so now, 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 now notice the similarities. <clears throat> the same phenomenon of hundreds of hours of mystery footage kept under seal and not being released. Right? That's what's going on right now with January 6th, right? The same criminal charges the FBI was seeking, conspiracy to obstruct a federal proceeding. The same political group being targeted, constitutional conservatives, right-wing militias, and patriot groups, and even the same right-wing agent provocateur militia leaders like Stuart Rhodes, who organized armed resistance paramilitaries in both cases, but magically evaded all Justice Department attention in both aftermaths. The aftermath of January 6th, the aftermath of the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014. Right now, John Sullivan is facing wrist slap charges, was released immediately without bail. He then quickly breached those release conditions, but was given a highly unusual free pass by the judge. Now, it's hard to find a genuinely peaceful MAGA protester who's been treated so kindly by the Justice Department. For example, the Oath Keeper and Green Beret veteran we mentioned earlier, Jeremy Brown, is being beheld, being held behind bars, his bail denied until trial, simply for standing 100 feet too close to the Capitol steps. To reiterate, Jeremy Brown, unlike John Sullivan, never even went inside the Capitol on January 6th. Turning back to the Ray Epps, John Sullivan video clip embedded in this article, it is remarkable to see Ray Epps, a man kicked out of two group conversations by Trump supporters on accusations of being a Fed, and John Sullivan, a man kicked out of two cities by Antifa groups on accusations of being a Fed, sharing the same video frame in the same group conversation on the same night. And in that clip, Ray Epps proposes such cartoonishly illegal activities that even John Sullivan jokes that Ray Epps is on some undercover agent type blank. The simultaneous presence of both Epps and Sullivan at the same place at the same time in the exact same conversation circle suggests the possibility these two were not there by accident, but rather were instructed or encouraged by handlers to go out. And as FBI special agent in Pola, instructed his assets in the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, maximize attendance. Ray Epps' singular focus on storming the Capitol was as remarkable as it was out of step with the agenda of everyone around him. All right? They linked to a clip, a clip, for instance, in which Ray Epps senses that some Trump supporters may be antagonizing police, and he rushes over to back them away. Later in the conversation, some Black Lives Matter members approach the crowd of Trump supporters, and Ray Epps makes the same pitch to the Black Lives Matter supporters about their common purpose with Trump supporters and the January 6th protest being about the Constitution. 
Rayep's strange behavior naturally draw, drew antagonism from some on the Trump side who were confused as to why Ray Epps was kissing up to Black Lives Matter. Indeed, Ray Epps was a man on a mission. And that mission appears to involve not hurting cops or getting entangles with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. That mission appears to be to get as many Trump supporters as possible to storm the U.S. Capitol. While a bit outside the chronology and embedded the following clip from approximately 3 p.m. on January 6th is revealing and how it shows Ray Epps in full crowd control mode patrolling the police line to back Trump supporters off the officers. Epps curiously tells them, we already did what we came here to do at 3 p.m. And that was, the, uh, that was the one we played for you a little bit earlier. This is a remarkable, remarkable article by Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News. And it shows, I think, quite conclusively that the whole January 6th operation at the U.S. Capitol was a setup. A setup by the feds to try to get as many Trump supporters arrested as possible. What do you make of the fact that here we are in late October and there are Trump supporters being held, being confined, federal prison, who are simply charged with nonviolent misdemeanors on January 6th. Denied bail because Biden Justice Department prosecutors are telling liberal judges, well, this uh, defendant is clearly dangerous, clearly shouldn't be allowed bond because he agrees with President Trump that the election was rigged. Oh, okay, yeah. We'll keep him in jail then. Uh, when's, the, uh, when's the trial again? Uh, sometime next year. Looks to me like the Justice Department and the FBI are doing whatever they can to punish people who disagree with the ruling regime politically. Now, let me skip down to the conclusion of this great article here from Darren J. Beatty's Revolver News. He says, in our previous reporting on FBI involvement in the events of January 6th, we have been careful to distinguish the case of federal foreknowledge from that of federal incitement. <clears throat> The case of mere federal foreknowledge of the so-called siege on the Capitol is bad enough and amounts to a national scandal in its own right. Indeed, if elements of the federal government knew in advance of conspiracies to siege the Capitol or otherwise disrupt the Senate proceeding on January 6th, the natural question arises as to why they did nothing to stop it. Given that the government and their allies in the regime media have framed January 6th as some sort of 9-11 caliber domestic terror event, the possibility that elements of the federal government knew about it in advance and yet sat back and let it happen for political purposes is, is incredibly damning. This would amount to nothing less 
than the government conspiring for the most malicious of political reasons to falsely cast tens of millions of law-abiding patriotic Americans as domestic terrorists. Given the magnitude of its implications, it's well worth repeating that federal foreknowledge is a virtual certainty. Just weeks ago, the New York Times itself begrudgingly acknowledged the presence of a Proud Boys militia member and informant who was texting his FBI handler through the entire day of January 6th, as well as several days in advance. The New York Times notes that the presence of this informant and likely many more, suggests that federal law enforcement had a far greater visibility into the assault on the Capitol, even as it was taking place, than was previously known. Now, Revolver News' groundbreaking investigative reporting on January 6th has, from the very beginning, suggested something far darker than just federal foreknowledge. Instead of simply having visibility, in advance to the events of January 6th and doing nothing to stop it? Revolver News has pointed to overwhelming evidence suggesting a much more proactive and participatory role on the part of the federal government. Revolver News' first piece noted that while many minor militia members and fellow travelers face serious conspiracy charges, several more senior militia members involved in the same activity, often more egregiously so, and referenced in the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys conspiracy charging documents, remain mysteriously unindicted. Revolver News later refined this thesis in an extremely deep-dive investigative report exploring the extraordinary federal protection and selective non-prosecution of Stuart Rhodes, none other than the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers militia, the key boogeyman militia group from the standpoint of both the government and the media. It would be one thing if the feds had low-level informants in the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. But the extraordinary federal protection of the founder and head of the main militia group imputed to January 6th suggests a far more active and participatory role in January 6th than simply just sitting back and letting it happen on purpose. As dark and scandalous as this is, the notion that the federal government's agents would take a proactive and participatory role in January 6th tracks far closely with what we now know to have been the role of federal agents and informants in the so-called Michigan governor kidnapping plot just months before the so-called January 6th insurrection. Given this background, we're in a better position to understand where this latest piece on Ray Epps fits into the broader narrative collapse of January 6th. If Revolver News' previous reporting points to a proactive role of the federal government in relation to the conspiracy cases against Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, the Ray Epps story seems to suggest a similar, yet more egregious, explicit, direct, and immediate degree of federal involvement in the breach of the Capitol itself. Indeed, there's one individual who's on tape encouraging the crowd to go into the Capitol the evening before January 6th. That very same individual is seen throughout January 6th corralling people toward the Capitol, quote, where our problems are, unquote. And that very same individual is on camera whispering into the ears of the men who committed the very first illegal acts of January 6th by breaking down the barricades. And yet, 
Just like Oathkeeper founder and head Stuart Rhodes, this individual, whom we now know is Ray Epps, so far has enjoyed an inexplicable protection from prosecution. Even more damningly, Revolver News has confirmed the FBI scrubbed Ray Epps from their public most wanted database just one day after Revolver News' damning investigative report on Ray Epps' fellow Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes. The story of Epps and other suspiciously unindicted apparent accomplices, such as the Maroon PB guy, suggests a far more extensive degree of proactive federal involvement on January 6th than even Revolver News had originally anticipated. And yet, tying it all back to Attorney General Merrick Garland, it all makes sense. The January 6th prosecutions are not the first time Garland oversaw high-profile militia prosecutions from a lofty perch in the Justice Department. More specifically, Merrick Garland oversaw, wait for it, more specifically, Merrick Garland oversaw the Oklahoma City bombing prosecutions, which are riddled with so many disturbing, unanswered questions that it would be outside the scope of this report to address them. Suffice it to say, right here, right now, that Merrick Garland was the top domestic extremism prosecutor for the Justice Department who worked with the FBI on several key right-wing militia cases right as the Justice Department was kicking its militia infiltration operations into high gear. The first such infiltration operation was known formally as something called PATCON. Starting in April 1991, three FBI agents posed as members of an invented racist militia group called the Veterans Aryan Movement. According to their cover story, members robbed armored cars using the proceeds to buy weapons and support racist extremism. The lead agent was a Vietnam veteran with a background in narcotics using the, the alias Dave Rossi. Codenamed PATCON for Patriot Conspiracy, the investigation would last more than two years, crossing state and organizational lines in search of intelligence on the so-called Patriot Movement. The label applied to a wildly diverse collection of racist, ultra-libertarian, right-wing, and or pro-gun activists and extremists who over the years have found common cause in their suspicion and fear of the federal government. Okay, now... The quote there is from foreignpolicy.com way back in 2012. But it's interesting to note that the Fed's lead agent was a military man, a Vietnam vet, especially given Ray Epps's similar pedigree. A careful study of the history of federal infiltration into militia groups reveals a pattern of using ex-military personnel to conduct such operations. What's still more interesting, however, it's how mainstream domestic extremism expert Jim Berger describes the nature of the PATCON operations and associated infiltration operations in the 90s that would have taken place under Merrick Garland's tutelage. He says, in 1990, again, this is from the foreignpolicy.com article in 2012. He says, in 1990, the FBI began picking up on rumors about an effort to reconstitute a notorious terrorist criminal gang known as the Order to prevent the rise of a second-order FBI undercover agents would become it. 
Again, all under Merrick Garland back in the 90s. Very interesting. To prevent the rise of a dangerous domestic extremist group or dangerous domestic terrorist group, the FBI would have to become one. Hence the establishment of the Honeypot Militia Organization Veterans Aryan Movement and dozens of other spinoff Honeypot Fed militia groups. Given the damning evidence in this and previous reports from Revolver News, there's increasingly little doubt that key agencies in the federal government and key figures such as Attorney General Merrick Garland take the same approach to infiltration operations today as they did back in the 1990s. In order to defeat the boogeyman of right-wing so-called patriot militia groups, the government has to become so-called right-wing patriot militia groups. In order to preempt the fictional possibility of a right-wing insurrection then, we might say the feds themselves had to become that insurrection. In light of the overwhelming weight of evidence, this damning conclusion seems unavoidable. We don't expect a straight answer from Attorney General Merrick Garland. We don't expect a straight answer from FBI Director Christopher Wray on this matter just yet, and neither should you. Such answers only come with sufficient pressure, and such pressure only arises from repeated exposure. What we can guarantee is that Revolver News will continue to expose the lies behind the government and regime media's false narrative of January 6th. There is so much more to be revealed, and we're just getting started. It says, stay tuned for the next major piece coming very soon. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. And I will post the article on my Facebook page. Meet Ray Epps, the Fed-protected provocateur who appears to have led the very first January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Y'all pray for Darren J. Beatty. Pray for his safety. I hope he has good security. Uh, Because this is uh, the kind of thing that the feds really don't want getting out there. But I was taught growing up that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I was taught growing up about the concept out of the Bible called there before the grace of God go I. And, uh, you know, if I'd had time off from my radio job and could have scrounged uh, together money to go to Washington, D.C., I could have been there that day. I could have been one of the people pushed into the Capitol against my will. Or one of the people who walked into the Capitol because friendly, smiling Capitol Hill police officers were holding the doors open. I could be one of those people sitting in a uh, federal prison since January of this year. If I'd been there, not knowing any better. So I take you back. When I was in the eighth grade, um, in U.S. history, we learned that Warren G. Harding ran for president in 1920 on a slogan of return to normalcy. Now, many years later, I read a book called Liberal Fascism written by a guy named Jonah Goldberg. 
And I learned what that meant. What it meant was Harding was saying, if you elect me president, I will release the 100,000 political prisoners that Woodrow Wilson put in jail. So history doesn't always repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. The Biden regime, whoever's pulling Biden's strings, has political prisoners, has people in jail, basically for being Trump supporters, nonviolent misdemeanors, no bond, no trial till next year. And yet the instigators, the instigators, people like Ray Epps and Stuart Rhodes, allegedly, walk free. And the FBI says, I hope you don't notice. But you know what? We do notice. We do notice. So I'm thankful to have this opportunity to talk to you every day. If you want to read the article, it will be on the Doc Washburn Facebook page, and also I'll link to it on Twitter. But thank you. Thank you so much. We have over 17,000 downloads after just the first 10 episodes, 48 states, 20 foreign countries. And we're thankful. And if uh, it's about time, I guess, we start uh, doing some, accepting some advertisers. If you're interested in what we're doing, and looking to advertise with us, just email us, contact at docwashburnshow.com. Appreciate y'all so much. God bless you. This has been episode number 11, Tuesday, October 26, 2021, of the Doc Washburn Show, and we will see you tomorrow, God willing. Thanks so much.